Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. As part of our effort to bring you the voices and lived experiences of some of the Africa's change makers, we're joined today by Sally Matu. Sally Matu Diallo is the managing partner of ADNA, a legal practice that she co-founded with offices in Abidjan, in Conakry, in Algiers and Casablanca. I think you're speaking to us today from Dakar in Senegal, Salimatu. Welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Thank you, Marcus. Very happy to be with you today. And thanks for offering me this opportunity. Well, I've been looking forward to speaking to you for a few weeks since we scheduled this. Tell us about your background and what has inspired you to found ADNA, your legal practice. Tell us a bit about the work that you're doing there and some of your ambitions. Uh, so, as you said, I'm Salima Tudialo. I'm 41 years old. I'm the founding partner of ADNA, who is an independent law firm based in four countries, as you just mentioned. I'm a lawyer specializing in projects, project financing more specifically, and I work in this field since 2005. I've been working in uh, France for quite a number of years before setting up my own firm in Guinea, and I think we'll talk about it a bit later. Anna came from a very, very old session that I've been having with my partners, Fouad Bohabia, who is in uh, Algiers, Safia Fassifieri, who was in Casablanca, and Sydney Domoro, who is based in Abidjan. We've known each other for a number of years, most of us for more than 15 years. We went to college together. Some of us shared the same offices in law firms in France as trainees and then as junior associates. So it's a very long-standing relationship. And uh, we always had this ambition to go back to our country and to have our own firm. So each of us went back to the to his own country, set up his firm. And uh, when we started to, to engage into discussions about the challenges that we were facing by having our own firms in, in each different countries, we realized that there, there was an opportunity on the market to actually work together more closely. And three of the firms initially joined the ILN in 2017 when we were each independent. And then after a number of years, we realized that we wanted to go further in terms of integration and we decided to merge our existing firms into ADNA. So ADNA was launched in June 2021 and we're very much excited by this new firm. It's going to be a very challenging journey, but we are very excited about it. And we think there's a lot to do on the continent today, and there's a lot of opportunity for a firm like ours. Well, congratulations. So founded really just a few months ago. You referred there to some of the challenges that you're expecting. Can you tell us a little bit more about those challenges? What do you expect them to be? I think it's going to be challenging in the sense that we are based in different countries to begin with. So in terms of geographics, we have to work as one firm uh, while being based in different countries. So that's one of the, the key challenges. But I think, you know, the IT will definitely help us to overcome this type of challenges. We are uh, at the moment building our IT system to have 
everything common and we are working on it very heavily at the moment. It's very important for us to have a very strong IT system in place to be able to service our clients and to service our collaborators to our associates who are working with us. It's important for them to have the feeling that they are indeed part of the same firm, whether they are based in Algiers or in Abidjan. Also, we are working in different political, economical environments. It's Each office has its own challenges in its own country. So it's also something that we have to take into account when we work on different matters. We are used to work across the borders. It's transactional work that we do most of the time. So cross-border financing, cross-border M&A, it's always important to take the different cultures into account when you're working across the borders. The other challenges that I see is the fact that each of us had its own firm. So it's exactly the same thing. When you get married, at some point, you have to give away a part of your sovereignty <laughs> over your own kingdom. So each of us had to do that and to go through this process. You know, we've been taking a lot of habits uh, throughout the years by having our own firms. And now we need to take the, uh, the advice of others and to take into account the common interests of the firm. Well, thank you for that overview. You mentioned that your work is primarily in project finance and project development. Can you tell us yes. a little bit about the current state of the market, the sort of projects that you're working on in Guinea and the demand for your services? So we are working primarily for financing. So we work a lot with DFIs who are financing projects in Guinea and in the water region in particular. We also advise a number of mining companies on large-scale mining projects in the country. We're working on one of the major mining projects in the country, and it's going to be a very, very long-term project. I think it's interesting to have the, the dual capacity to work both on the sponsor side and also on the lender side, because it gives you a, a good understanding of the different constraints and the expectations that you have on each side of the table. And I think it's something that we specifically take into account when we're working across one side or the other. And it's also interesting to work with government in this type of project because they always play a key role in this project, whether in the energy, when we're working on solar power projects or in the mining and industry. But we also do some uh, corporate M&A work in the region. And then this is something which is booming because of the sophistication of the market that we can see more and more big corporate firms in, in the regions, in particular, I would say in Abidjan rather than in Guinea. And those uh, domestic firms now require legal services, sophisticated legal services. That's interesting to hear you talk to the M&A market and your observation or lived experience that there's more M&A transactions happening within the region. Tell us a little bit more, which sectors are those occurring in and who's involved in some of these transactions? Are they being led by regional teams, perhaps based in one of the capitals in the region, or are they being led by teams based in Europe or further afield? It actually depends. It depends on the size of the economy. So the MA was still very shy in Francophone West Africa for the past few years. But you can see that in markets very sophisticated like Morocco or Algeria, there have been a lot of MA transactions. I'm not an MA lawyer myself, but what I hear from my colleague is that they, they do a lot in the real estate and also in um, consumer goods, also in industries. That's why you, you can see a lot of MA transactions, uh, logistics as well, quite important in these sectors. So I would say that depending on the size of the economy in each country, you can see more and more MA transactions coming. In Guinea, it's still 
very shy and it's more in the banking and insurance sector. Uh, so very heavily regulated transactions. That's what we've seen in our countries. Perhaps I could focus you on sectors and the geography in which you're most familiar and you do most work. You mentioned energy and mining. You introduced us to a big mining project that you're working on in Guinea that'll take several years to develop. What's the state of the market there? I know that Guinea is now, I think, the biggest bauxite exporter globally. So you've clearly got a very strong bauxite sector. I know that you've got big iron ore reserves and and other minerals too. So there's a lot of global mining activity taking place in Guinea. We're involved in supporting some of those operators and providing the finance for some of those projects in the way that you mentioned. I've heard reference in the past to the transformative potential of Guinean minerals, meaning such as the richness of your mineral wealth, that it really could be transformative in terms of growing the economy and and addressing poverty in Guinea. For too long, I think too many people have been disappointed by the inability to really capture that potential for the benefit of Guinean society at large. What's your observation there and and your lived experience of working in the sector? Yes, I mean, Guinea is always a very interesting case study. (laughs) As you pointed out, we are a very rich natural resource country, so we could have expected to be a very developed country. There is always this curse when you have a lot of natural resources. I think Guinea is not the only example in this respect. The DRC uh, is also a very good example of, sad example of that situation. Having said that, I think since I set up my firm in Guinea in 2013, I've seen a lot of progress and a lot of cleaning of the sector, if I may say. I think the government and the international institutions have done a very good job at really bringing more transparency into the sector. And uh, we, we can see it on the ground. I'm more involved on the sponsor's side. And it's always difficult to move projects forward in Guinea, but we've also seen a lot of progress because, you know, some project financing, which were not possible a few years ago, closed. And I think that it's a good sign for the market. The key challenge, I would say, in this sector is the infrastructure, the lack of infrastructure. And I know that both the government and the sponsor are very conscious of that challenges. And uh, we are working on a number of mutualization projects for the infrastructure to evacuate the minerals, either bauxite or iron. And it's really one of the key challenges, I would say, to the development and to be able to leverage the the different large-scale projects in the country at the moment. Thank you. Earlier when we were speaking, you mentioned that in building your own practice across the four markets in which you operate across the region, you had as partners to give up certain amounts of sovereignty to one another. As you were saying that, it occurred to me that indeed that is a lesson that uh, some of the politicians and political leaders within the region could probably pick up a, a tip or two from the way you approach that. I'm thinking specifically in relation to some of those bauxite and iron ore deposits that you referred to, that actually the economics of them only really work when you consider transboundary export solutions. I know that there was a joint commission recently between Guinea and Liberia looking at export routes from Guinea through Liberia uh, to Buchanan, I think it is, around the, the NIMBA site. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see cooperation and collaboration evolving in the region based on your particular vantage point working across the region as you do? 
I think it's uh, still a very, very difficult uh, issue. And it's not necessarily an area where we've seen a lot of progress. You mentioned mm. this uh, cooperation between Liberia and Guinea, but the project has been there for years and years and years. And as you know, it's been very difficult to reach any agreement uh, on the evacuation of the, the minerals. It may make sense from an economic perspective, but you know, politics is key in type of issues. Uh, so I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic, but I would say it's uh, it's very difficult. We have similar issues in terms of uh, power. In Guinea, we are able to feed power to a number of countries in the region because of our very important hydropower supply capacity. But it's still difficult to reach agreements with uh, neighboring countries in order to be able to, to sign off-tech agreements. So I would say that regional cooperation is still a concept. Thank you. And you brought me onto a subject that I was really keen to speak to you about. And that's sovereign and political risk and understanding a little bit better how the skills and services and advice that you give to your clients, to project sponsors, project finances, really helps to mitigate and manage sovereign and political risk in particular. The sectors that you work in, mining and energy, in the way that you've just described, are really reliant on political goodwill, a clean and transparent regulatory environment and predictable. How is it that the instruments that you have at your disposal are directly applicable and relevant to sponsors and developers who are looking to manage some of those risks? I've always been very interested in geopolitics and diplomacy, and I actually wanted to be a diplomat when I was younger. I incidentally fell into law, but um, I wanted to be a diplomat when I started my legal studies. So I'm lucky to have found a legal field in which we have to take these elements into account, where the political context is very important more than in any other legal field. There are a number of legal tools that we can use in these areas, such as, for example, stabilization provisions, which uh, allow you to, to freeze the legal and regulatory regime on a certain date when you negotiate a very large scale project, whether in the oil and gas sector or in the mining sector. But even in that context, the policy may still be uh, open to challenge. And uh, we have seen a number of revisitation projects in the region, not only in Guinea, but the government come, you know, wants to put all the agreements on the table with foreign investors and you, you have to renegotiate, you really do not have any choice. But I think the fact that we have very good relationship both with the government and also with our clients gives us a very good understanding of what each side of the table is looking for. We are able to understand the expectation of the government, of the public side, and also of our clients. And uh, I think also each partner with ADNA have this multicultural approach. We are African, but we also have a very good understanding of the Western culture and the Western skills that are required in, uh, in some of these projects. We are able to understand both sides, as I, as I said, and to be able to, to bridge the gap during very tense negotiations. I personally experienced that uh, several times, you know, where you are in the negotiation rooms and everything is stuck. Because you are in the middle and you're able to make a joke to the other side and you know uh, the other side personally, sometimes it helps to achieve some negotiations objectives. Oh, interesting. I wonder if you'd be happy to share any other anecdotes or insights. You referenced humour there, bringing some mm -hmm. humour into the discussion and the importance of really understanding your interlocutors and, and knowing them well. Are there any other 
tips that you give to your clients or that you bring to negotiations and mediations? Yes, I think what is really key is that people trust you, both sides of the tables. If only one of the parties has trust in you, then it's going to be difficult. But if both parties involved trust you, then I think you can play a key role in negotiating because they will come to you even if you're not on their side <laughs> for advice or to give you some you know, um, off-the-record tip. And this happened to me a lot uh, when we were negotiating a big project financing. I had some you know, information from the government side because I knew them very well and uh, it was also very important for me to be able to convey some messages to my clients. So I've always felt, you know, in between different cultures, having been raised in different countries and having had this uh, international exposure very young in my life. And I think it's a skill that I apply every day in my, in my work. Oh, interesting. And a custodian of trust and intermediary between, as you phrased it, the Western multinational companies who dominate in the mining sector specifically and the national government. Do you find yourself working at a localized level as well with provincial governments or counties and administrations at, at the localized level or it's restricted for the most part to the national level? No, we are also involved with administration because we help companies to get the permit and authorization they need in order to build their project on the ground. So we have a very good relationship as well with the local community. Sometimes we are involved in negotiations with one-stop shop in Guichet who helps companies to uh, apply for those permits and authorizations. So it's also quite interesting to be able to have this perspective. Can I ask you if the same philosophy that you apply to your work in Conakry and in Guinea is relevant also for your other partners? Are they politically astute and plugged in with the political classes and understanding some of the ambitions of the political classes and what my team would refer to as political economy motivations? Is that a core part of your value proposition to your corporate client base and finances? Yes, definitely. Um, I think it's something that we share across ADNA. And uh, in Abidjan, you would find exactly the same type of expertise and exposures. Likewise, in Morocco, I was speaking to my partner in Morocco very recently about that. And uh, she was insisting on the fact that, you know, it really helps to be able to pick up the phone sometimes to get a deal through. And I would certainly think that uh, Algeria is the same, even though it's a bigger economy. So I would... Mm. They, they are more corporate than us. So yeah, I think across that now, it's something that we value. But at the same time, it's very important for us to remain independent. So we very rarely work on the public side. We are known for work for private companies most of the time because of conflict of interest, obviously. And we are very, very careful about that for us. It's very important to have a clear policy of conflict. It's very important for our clients and it's very important for our ethics. Adna has only been in existence for a few months. I know you were practicing before in Conakry. As you grow your practice, how are you planning to impart some of those skills that you've gained working internationally into a, a new complement of staff that you, you recruit and grow? Do you have a, a specific plan in that regard or do you hope that it happens through osmosis, through exposure to you and experience working alongside you? 
talent is very, very important uh, when you're building a firm. And we always pay a lot of attention at the profile that we recruit in each office. It's very difficult to find the right talent, I have to say, because of the various skills that we require. We require people who are bilingual because we, we need to be able to work both in English and in French in uh, in our transactions and most of our clients are English speakers but also as I said we are very focused on finding people who have the right mindset because we are not a, a typical law firm we are an entrepreneurial law firm and we are looking for talents who have and who share this mindset for us you know when they come and join us they are going to build the firm with us and they are going to be a very important element of this journey. Thank you, Salimato. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, if I may now, about your experience in moving back to Conakry, having grown up and practiced law abroad in Europe, and I think the States as well, if I'm correct. You decided that it was always your ambition to move back to Conakry to found a practice and work from there. Has the experience lived up to your expectation? That's my first question. And I suppose specifically, I'm interested to know whether being a female, a lady who founded a business, whether you feel there are any prejudices that you face in having set up your business and operating in the way that you do. I'm just interested to know how that experience has panned out against perhaps expectations you might have had. Yes. So I have to tell you something. I didn't go back to Guinea. I went to Guinea because I never lived in Guinea before 2013. My parents had left the country 40 years before. And for me, it was really arriving in a new country, even if it yeah. was my parents' country. So it's not exactly the same story as the typical repats, you know, was born and raised in a specific country. Uh, you know, go to college somewhere and then decide to go back home. So my story is a little bit different in, in that respect. I was discovering the country <laughs> in 2013, but I always felt very close to Guinea. My parents were always very keen to teach us the language uh, of our tribe. I speak Fulani and I'm very proud and happy to be able to communicate with my people when I'm in Guinea, although it's not the only language of the country, obviously. So it's a very good pride for me to have been raising in the country. So I was born and raised in different countries. Uh, I was born in Ivory Coast in Abidjan, and then lived in uh, Algeria when I was younger, then moved to France. I lived in Chartres, to Paris, and then in the Comoros, in the Indian Ocean, and then went back to Paris to go to college and finally in the U.S when I was in Washington, D.C. at American University. So all these experiences taught me that you you can move to any country and feel at ease. Uh, going back to Guinea was very interesting and very emotional for me. I remember when I called my dad to, to tell him that I was going back to Guinea. He was very proud, but at the same time, he was very scared. And uh, I remember my friends were telling me that I would not survive six months in the country. But I ended up settling well. And I was very, very happy to be able to know my country better, to be close to my grandparents who now passed away. And from a cultural perspective, I think I always felt very Guinean and also at the same time, very French. So I would say I'm a mix of both cultures. And it's the same for most of my partners in Nigeria, Morocco, or Ivory Coast. We have this common background, and I think it makes a difference in the way we also run our firm today. 
I was quite welcome in the country. I didn't feel that I was uh, a stranger. I felt very welcome. And even though sometimes there were some cultural gaps in terms of the expectations or the social pressure sometimes that you can feel when you are a woman living in, uh, in Africa, I think all in all, it was a very positive experience. And I never felt that I wanted to go back to Europe. Yes, I don't know if you know this, but for about seven years, I traveled to Conakry every four to six weeks. Yes, I have a, a lovely experience of, of spending time in Conakry. I didn't get to see much more of the country, but um, mm-hmm. I have a friend who, in fact, walked across Guinea. He's an editor now, but at the time he was a correspondent for the Financial Times. And he's always been imploring me to follow in his footsteps and, and make that journey. Um, Interesting. Yes, your countryside is beautiful. Amazing. Um, Yes. Tell us a little bit more for those in our audience who haven't visited Guinea. What makes the place so special? I would say the, the people are special. They are warm. I think they're very happy to, to have foreigners visiting. Uh, you know, because the country has been closed for, for so long. It's a special country compared to other countries in the region. And uh, I think Guinea is special in the region in that sense. Because in other regions, you can still feel a lot of the French influence because they have remained open, I would say. Uh, Guinea has this political history when uh, Sekou Touré actually wanted its independence and uh, the, the freedom for, for the country before the other countries in the region. So we always have this, uh, this special hat in the region and we are known for, for, for that. The country is beautiful inside. Countryside is very different. You, you can find very different landscapes in the four natural regions of the country, and it's a very green country. It's very often compared to Switzerland, so Guinea mm. is often called the African Switzerland because it's very green. You find a lot of lakes, a lot of waterfalls. The only downside is that we don't have a lot of infrastructure. The poor infrastructure makes it very difficult to travel across the country, and it's a shame, I think, because it's really a country worth visiting. You're working on that. Your project finance skills are being put to play to help build and grow Guinean sure. infrastructure. So that must make you feel good, a purpose worth living. You mentioned earlier the changes that have been witnessed in Guinea over the last decade or so, improved transparency, better qualities of governance in the country. I hesitate to say from, from a relatively low base under successive, or well, there was a military junta for a period and before that, a quite autocratic leadership. Your observation about the quality of leadership in in politics and business. I should say, I have a slight slant here. At Africa Practice, we're supporting the the World Economic Forum with their Leadership and Values Initiative. And so we're always keen to interrogate with people such as yourself um, the importance of values-based leadership and ethics for transforming societies. I'm interested to get an insight from you about your observation about how the quality of leadership perhaps has improved in Guinea and the difference that you see that making in in Guinean society since you travelled to the country. (laughs) How can I put that? It's our policy within ADNA not to comment on politics. (laughs) So uh, we we usually don't make any comments on government or politics in each country because we believe we need to remain very independent in that respect. Having said that, we also very believe that Ethics is key, as you said, in transforming a country. And at the firm, we uphold those values very, very high. And it's something on which we are very strict. 
so when we're working on uh, projects and project financing in particular, and even when we welcome new lawyers in, in our firms, we are very clear on those issues and we have zero tolerance for corruption or the like and something which is very important and certainly something for which our clients come to us also. Thank you. You mentioned financiers and the work that you do in providing the project finance. I'd like to get a a perspective from you on how the mix has changed. You mentioned at the outset you do a lot of work with DFIs but I'm wondering to what degree there's more appetite from commercial lenders to be involved in some of these big infrastructure projects that you're working on? Actually, um, the team of lenders is a mixed team. So it will certainly be led by one or two DFI, but you will always find a few commercial banks within the the pool of lenders. And uh, we've seen it even very recently. Actually, one of the latest financing that we closed wasn't laid by a DFI. Uh, It was a purely commercial uh, lenders financing. So commercial lenders are looking at our markets and they still have uh, some appetite for for the risk in in our jurisdiction. We work a lot for US DFIs, but also principally with European DFIs. And we also work a lot with China. We uh, have advised China Exim Bank on one of the the largest uh, power project financing in the country. So we work for for lenders and DFIs across the globe, yes. I'm so grateful to you for for giving us perspective, not just on Guinea, but the sort of work that you're doing and the journey that you're on in having founded your own legal practice or co-founded your own legal practice, the work that you're doing also across the region. I've got one last question for you, if I may. I ask this to a number of our voices of Africa. What are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a book that I really like, uh, which is The Power of Now uh, by Eckhart Tolle. I uh, read it a few years ago and I recently felt like I wanted to read it again. I think spirituality is the key to a successful and happy life, both from a personal perspective and also professional perspective. And I think it gives you the keys to be very anchored in what uh, you do. So I would definitely recommend that The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. The Power of Now. Well, thank you, Salimatu. I'm so grateful to you for spending time with us. I wish you, doesn't sound like you need any good fortune, but I wish you strength and perseverance and lots of progress in your career and with Adna. And may you be successful in bringing more finance to important infrastructure projects that you're working on in Guinea and across the region. Thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Marcus. It was a pleasure speaking to you and thanks for the team. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.